Trigger warning. This program contains discussions about emotional, physical, and sexual abuse as recounted by adult survivors from their childhood experiences. The purpose of this program is to promote healing among survivors of childhood sexual abuse, primarily with male survivors. Some of these discussions, however, may trigger past trauma. This program also includes explicit language. A lot, a lot of boys will think, what, what did I do to bring this on? What did I do to, to make this person want to do this to me? Perpetrators are cunning, they're manipulative, they pick up on very slight cues that lead them to think, oh, maybe I can get away with this. They figure out how to manipulate kids. Um, the vast majority of sexual abuse is done by somebody close to you and that you know and that you love and you trust. Sexually abused men are five times more likely than the, the, a non-abused male to end up with some kind of sexual dysfunction, um, sexual addiction, some kind of, of sexual problem in their adulthood. I'm Lorward, and welcome to a conversation with Dr. Douglas Carpenter, acclaimed clinical psychologist specializing in helping men heal from the trauma of childhood sexual abuse. And I'm Craig. Uh, as most of you, uh, as most of us here today, Lorward and I are also survivors. The Men's Division of Voices Beyond Assault hosts these monthly programs because we understand that men who suffer sexual assault are not always heard. We want to amplify their voices, empower them to heal, and provide resources needed. And as such, we would like to remind you first that this is a program that will contain discussions about emotional, physical, and sexual abuse that may also include explicit language. The purpose of these programs is to put a spotlight on the healing journey specific to men. However, these programs are all-inclusive. So we're honored and pleased to have as our guest today, Dr. Douglas Carpenter. As we stated at the beginning of the program, Dr. Carpenter, besides uh, having a PhD in clinical psychology and a master's of science in counseling and substance abuse rehabilitation, a lot of school there, Dr. Carpenter is the author of what I have personally found to be the best book written for male survivors in the last 20 years at least, and it's it's only published two years ago. Uh, the book is called Secret Shame. Uh, it's a survivor's guide to understanding male sexual abuse and male sexual development. Dr. Carpenter lives in Michigan. He's coming all the way from Michigan today um, with his wife, two children, one daughter-in-law, and three spaniels. And they're special spaniels, I know, but uh, I left that out. Dr. Carpenter, there's so much more that you do and have done, but I want to focus today on your book, Secret Shame. Uh, I first want to thank you for writing this book. It was an absolute game changer for me personally. There are so many areas to cover in your book that, that we're recording two interviews today. So part one is going to focus on your findings and some of the technical aspects of abuse. Part two will delve into the effects of childhood sexual abuse on men's sexual and relationship development. So again, Dr. Carpenter, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. And, and thank you for writing that book. 
Well, thank you very much. That was quite the introduction. And I, I appreciate your kindness and your kind words. And it's a pleasure to be here today with both of you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again, Dr. Carpenter. Can you kind of begin by telling us a little bit about your story, how you got started in your practice working with male survivors and running us through that? Yeah. Well, um, so I went to undergraduate in Pace University in New York City. Uh, I knew for many years that I wanted to go into a helping type profession. I actually started by going to seminary first. And while I was in seminary, I then decided that this wasn't really for me, that I wanted to help people on an individual basis, which I had done all through high school. I'd worked in the guidance and counseling office. And so I'd been helping students for a long time. Um, then at the end of my bachelor's degree, I then went into a master's program that was specialized in drug and alcohol rehabilitation. During my doctoral program, I started working in a county jail, and the rest of the mental health professionals there did not want to work with the sex offenders in in the jail. So having a master's in addiction, having a real interest in trauma, I started working with them. In working with them, probably 99% of the men that I worked with had their own severe sexual abuse story and so that really piqued my interest in male sexual abuse male sexual trauma and then how it led to sexual acting out problems in sexual development um sexual perpetration sexual trauma so that's kind of where all that got birthed was birthed in my interest in that i did my doctoral dissertation examining um, 250 laws across every state on eight different variables. Um, at that point, uh, that was back in 1997, 98, there was a lot of disparity in the laws. Megan's law had just come out. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Megan's mm -hmm. law, but that's involves like registered sex offenders having to register in any state where they moved because there was a lot of um, predators sexual offenders who were registered in one state would move to a state where they didn't have to register. And so there wasn't a lot of uniformity in the law. So I, my dissertation was an examination of the disparity in sexual abuse definitions across states and requirements across states, pushing for a more unified definition and laws that stopped predators. So that was kind of my beginning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and from I then just uh, moved into an arena of of teaching college, um, teaching about sexual abuse, teaching about addiction, um, and then in my own practice, that that's been my focus has been sexual addiction, sexual trauma, sexual dysfunction, um, all among men. Are Are you yourself a survivor? I am. Yes. Did I that am. have any influence in, in your decision and in moving into it? Not originally. Um, it, it actually, and this is probably going to sound uh, somewhat bizarre, but I think this happens to a lot of men. I, for many, many years, did not view my own story as sexual abuse. I ended up kind of framing it as just experimentation. But yet I would notice within myself that 
some of the behaviors, characteristics, the feelings that I had were definitely aligning with people who had been sexually abused. So it took me a number of years to come to terms with what happened to me was abuse. You know, and I find that so often with men, they try to explain away what happened to them and come up with a lot of excuses, justifications, self-blame to where they don't even recognize that it's it's been abuse. So, you know, it took me a number of years to be able to say that I was abused because the person that acted out with me was someone very close to my own age. Mm-hmm. So I never viewed that as sexual abuse. Um, it's kind of multi-layered. His stepfather, um, when I would go to his house, it was probably between the fifth and sixth grade. His house was full of pornography. And this wasn't like, this was a very nice house. His dad was a business owner. I mean, I'm not talking like, you know, I, I wasn't at a crack house or like, this wasn't a yeah. terrible place. This was a very nice place, a very nice home. My parents didn't think one thing about letting me go to these people's homes, you know? So I was there and there was pornography everywhere. Like it was on the coffee table, on the poker table, in the bathroom. Like it was just laid out. Like it was better homes and gardens, you know, or cosmopolitan or something. So um, I had to come to terms too, that that is and in a lot of States, according to the definition, that is sexual abuse. That is abuse in and of itself because you're exposing an underage person to pornography that I believe then drove my friend to then want to act out what he was seeing in the pornography and then started acting out on me and with me. And I had grown up as a very naive child. Like this was a whole new world. How old were you at the time? I was probably between fifth and sixth grade. So that would have put me around 11 years old. Okay. You know, and I really had very little sexual knowledge at all because I grew up in a very evangelical Christian um, ultra conservative home where sex was not discussed at all. So it's interesting. I I know that you do work with uh, helping men uh, overcome addiction to pornography. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. I want to first talk about the statistics because... uh, you, you mentioned that men take so long coming forward. A lot of men probably still don't come forward. We hear this, this statistic all the time of one in six men were abused as children. Do you think that's accurate or do you think that there is more than that? And, um, and then I also want to ask you why it takes men so long to confront their abuse. Sure. So you asked several questions there that I can <laughs> talk for a long time about each one of those. Um, so do I agree with the one in six? And, and a lot of that comes from um, a website called one in six dot org that was started by Dr. Jim Hopper and is now run by um, a doctor. I think it's Levant. Um, I could be wrong on that. I could be mixing up his name. But anyway, um, I do think that that's either accurate or underrepresented because males do not disclose. Typically, they don't tell. You mentioned this in when you were asking me these questions. There are There's a research study, a rather large research study, 
that shows that men often don't uh, disclose their abuse for 25 to 26 years after it takes place. So it's not uncommon for a man, you know, anywhere from 35 to 40 to come into my office and he's never told anyone about his sexual abuse. In fact, yesterday I had a 50 year old man uh, that I was texting with. He had heard me on a podcast and he sent me a message and I was the first person he'd ever disclosed that he'd been sexually abused to. So a lot of men hold on to this information uh, for many, many years and never disclose it. Um, and is, is that the, is that different with men than with women? And what, then why is that? Why why are men not disclosing? Well, uh, I I have not in depth researched and studied the statistic on females because I I consider myself to be an expert around male sexual abuse. Sure. Um, it, it seems in the literature that men. Uh, disclose at a much lower rate than females. Um, I think one of those is that females are often injured in the sexual abuse, and it may be more easy to detect by a by a parent or a caregiver, um, where it's not so easy by a male unless they were anally penetrated. Um, the other thing is there, there's a host of reasons why men don't tell. In fact, I think chapter nine in my book, I, I give more than 40 reasons why men don't disclose their abuse. Um, one of those can be, well, the basis of all that is shame. Sexual abuse drives a sense of shame that then becomes what we call toxic shame. So not only did something bad happen to the person, but then the person internalizes that and then begins to believe that they are bad. So a lot, a lot of boys will think, what, what did I do to bring this on? What did I do to, to make this person want to do this to me? Did I act too feminine? Did, did he see that I was weak? Um, did, does he see that I'm gay and I don't even know yet that I'm gay? So is he seeing something in me that I'm not even aware of myself? Um, some men don't disclose because being male, our genitalia are external. And if you touch them, they're going to respond to touch. Your body does not know. I tell people this all the time. Your body does not know the difference between um, abuse, sex, and intimate touch. Your body just knows it's being touched. And so your body's going to respond. And a lot of times for a male, when you touch the male genitalia, it is pleasurable. So then you get that mix of this is something bad. This is something shameful. This is something I know I shouldn't maybe be engaging in or something I don't understand. But yet it feels good. So there becomes all this mental confusion between the pleasure of the act and the abuse of the act. So that keeps males from disclosing because am I going to get in trouble for this? I already feel shame about this. I feel I may feel shame because this man treated me like a female instead of a male. He used my body in a way that, you know, he feminized my body. So there's shame involved in that. There's fear of homosexuality or being labeled as a homosexuality. 
Um, so there was a there was a research study that showed that the top three reasons why men don't disclose was fear of being accused of being homosexual, fear of becoming homosexual, and fear that they themselves will then become a perpetrator, yeah. which rarely happens. So the the we can't even find a significant uh, statistically significant um, outcome that shows that people who have been abused become pedophiles. Okay. So I just, I just want to lay that out there. So there are, there is a host of reasons why men choose not to disclose and, and overarching it's because they come to believe faulty myths, beliefs, you know, cognitive distortions, if we want to use a mental health term about themselves about the experience and about the perpetrator that then prevent them from disclosing. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think that, that the, the one about that strikes me a little bit is the, um, the one about uh, the myth about uh, people who are abused becoming abusers. And um, I know a lot of people who aren't abuse victims that actually Thought that right, and then and then when you disclose that you're an abuse survivor, they're like, oh, you know, they, you're worried that they're going to look at you like, okay, do they think because they that's what society has for some reason um, led people to believe maybe through TV shows and you know yeah. you'll have the murderer because he was abused by his parents or something and. And, and um, that that could be part of it, but uh, it's it is uh, definitely a, a, I can see where that would be an issue. Yeah, it is an issue, and I, and I'm definitely not saying that doesn't ever happen. Like Freud was Sigmund Freud was the first one to come up with a coping mechanism that was called identification with the aggressor, and sometimes people who are abused during the abuse they they're sense of power and control is ripped from them and psychologically the way they gain that back is then to identify with their abuser abuse someone else and take back another person's sense of power and control for them to feel back in control of themselves so that does happen we i do see people who identify with their aggressor and then turn around and recreate their abuse scenario in a harmful way to another child that does happen but what happens more often is that when a person is sexually abused and they have a trauma bond to their abuse they recreate their sexual abuse with another person but it's still something being done to them they don't then per turn around and perpetrate it onto someone else so I, I hope that there's a difference there and people can see the difference there. So, for example, there is a man in the book uh, that I interviewed and I used some of his quotes. His brother used to play this game with him where the game ended up that his brother would forcibly copulate with his mouth. Um, and so he would end up giving his brother force fellatio. And in his adult life, he seeks out men who will dominate him and do to him what his brother did to him. That's often how 
if a person bonds to the trauma in an inappropriate way, well, any bonding to your trauma is inappropriate, but one of the eight ways you can bond to your trauma is to called trauma, trauma repetition. And that's where you continue to recreate your abuse scenario in what was being done to you in, in adulthood. And, and that is a clear example of how that can transpire versus taking that and perpetrating it on someone else. That happens way more often than a person identifying with the aggressor. And why sexually abused men are five times more likely than the, the, a non-abused male to end up with some kind of sexual dysfunction, um, sexual addiction, some kind of, of sexual problem in their adulthood. Because they're not disclosing or because they're identifying with what had happened? Because they're recreating their, their okay, scenario exactly. or something has happened mm -hmm. to cause their sexual beliefs or, or behavior to go out of the norm. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, this is an example that I use in the book. One guy that I interviewed he learned that if he could ejaculate really quickly in the abuse, the abuse would be over. And so he trained himself to just ejaculate as quick as possible to get the abuse in. And now as an adult, he se severely struggles with premature ejaculation because his body hasn't learned to calm down and separate abuse from adult sexual intimacy. So he he's conditioned his body to ejaculate quickly. So and so that's a way that his sexual abuse has impacted his adult life. And because it's like you said, like because these dysfunctions are repeating themselves, their coping mechanisms become ingrained and more patterned in the person's life and needing to, you know, break out of that repetition in order to break the coping mechanism or the dysfunction is, uh, I guess, kind of what you're alluding to. And I, I guess I, I want to ask, like, how does that kind of start? Like, how do we start to recognize some of these patterns that we're engaging in? And how do we start to break out of them a little bit more? Well, anytime somebody comes to me with a problem, I try to track down what I call their origin story. Where was the first time you felt this way? Where do you think was the first time you experienced this? When was the first time you had this feeling? When was the first time this came into your awareness? So I try to trace back the behavior to find the origin of it. And oftentimes, like men will come in and they will say, I keep repeating this sexual behavior, or I keep going to this type of porn, or I keep doing this certain problem and I will trace it back to them. And many times with sexual abuse survivors, it will go back to that original sexual abuse that something has, has come out of that. So for an example, if you look at arousal patterns, arousal patterns are based on something we call cues. A woman has a set of cues. A woman likes a guy because of your job, your hair, your, your body, how you relate to other women, 
how you treat your mom. They have like a set of cues. That's why sometimes guys will look at women and be like, she is so hot. Like, how is she with him? Like, she is so out of his league. Well, that's because she has a set of cues that she has evaluated him on. And for some reason, he has triggered her arousal pattern. Men, on the other hand, if you if you look at their arousal patterns, it takes one specific cue. Like you, you can hear guys say, what, what kind of guy are you? Are you a boob guy? Are you a butt guy? Are you a hair guy? Are you a, you know, what kind of guy are you? Men can be uh, aroused by one simple cue. And a lot of times in these stories, you will look back at the origin story and there may be some one factor in the abuse that's stuck in the person's head. And then they they continue to chase that in their sexual behavior for a lifetime unless they get treatment and then try to understand the origin story and, and how that specific cue has become part of their adult sexual story. Does that make sense? <clears throat> yeah, there's this very like, you're, you're they're really latching onto this one thing and looking for that everywhere they go and continuing to look for that even though yes. that scenario is now gone and passed. Yeah. And that's really how fetishes develop. Fetishes are an attraction to one cue, like feet. Like, for example, I treated a guy recently who, um, he was from a pretty neglectful family. And one of the parents was ill. And so there was often a nurse at his house. Well, at the family dinner table, when he was done eating, he would get on the floor and run around and play and would often go underneath the table. And the visiting nurse would also often play with him under the table with her feet. And that was really the only time this kid was getting some kind of nurturance from, from an adult. And he grew up and he now has a foot fetish and couldn't <laughs> understand why do I have this foot fetish? But when I started going backwards with him, examining some of these questions that was the beginning of his fetish that was the cue and the cue was not feet itself the cue is that feet represented getting some love and nurturance from someone like i'm gonna sound like freud now a cigar is never just a cigar sex is never just sex it always has an emotional meaning it is meeting an emotional need and so many men don't understand the connection I mean, that, that was part of my whole purpose in writing this book is that when I was treating men, I, I felt like I, I couldn't find a resource that I felt like was comprehensive enough or adequate enough to explain and understand sexual abuse of males. And none of the books connected the original abuse to adult sexual behavior and how sexual development was taken awry. So I spent six years writing a book that connected the two <laughs> and use it as my own resource. Yeah, I mean, you did such a great job of it. And and the thing that I love most about the book is that you you utilize everybody from Freud to to lots of other psychologists and, and talk about their theories and kind of bring them all into a way that it's understandable to someone who really kind of, I, I think I got a D in psych my first uh, semester in college. So 
the, the worst grade I ever got, but uh, you made your book made it very relatable, understandable, and it and it just it just lit the light bulb on yeah. on so many aspects of things that I was dealing with and thinking of, and and um, it's it's is that how you set out to write it? Because I mean, it, it, I've read yeah. lots of books. My wife says I have like to get a whole nother room just for all the abuse survivors and Ooh. psychologist books. And, and, and none of them have been as clear and concise and relatable as yours. Oh, well, thank you. I, I, I guess I, I see that as one of my gifts that I can take a psychological theory and I can break it down uh, pretty well into layman's terms to help people understand. Um. Uh, I've taught uh, behavioral statistics before in college and uh, students will tell me all the time, like, I've never understood this until I took your class. It's like, you can take these principles and you can break them down. And then you go, you explain them in a way that makes me go, Oh, that's easy. I get that. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I, I guess I just have a knack in doing that. So, but when I wrote this book, uh, like I said, it took me six years and I, I read and read and read and read hundreds of research articles and pulled out information and put information together. Um, and I tried to make that information accessible to sexual abuse victims. I wanted people to be able to make sense of their experience. You know, even if you weren't sitting in front of a therapist, I wanted you to be able to pick up this book and say, this is me right here. This is what I'm dealing with. I wanted them to, to be able to take this resource to a therapist and go, this is what I'm dealing with right here. And here's probably why. Like I wanted people to be able to, to connect the dots mm -hmm. by reading this book. Well, you succeeded. And and uh, the, the the thing that that's the tough part is that you, you go and you take it to your therapist and you say, this is me. This is me. This is me. <laughs> it's just almost, almost the like entire book. Oh, you just got it all. Yeah, the entire book is about me. Right. So, well, well, here's the other thing I wanted. I can't tell you how many times I've had sexual abuse victims and survivors go to therapist and the therapist was just clueless on, on how to manage this or what to say or, or how to work with it. I wanted this book to also be a resource for therapists and, and counselors and psychologists who either weren't trained in this area or who didn't um, study anything in this area or had never experienced it. I wanted them to be able to read this book and, and get it. You know, I was very fortunate when I was in graduate school that I had a teacher, her name was Dr. Betty Schlesing, and she taught a whole course on childhood sexual abuse. And I learned so much in that course. And actually, it was that course that gave me my idea for my dissertation. You know, so I walked out of graduate school pretty trained in, in how to deal with this topic. And then I've you know done a lot of continued research on my own. But a lot of clinicians don't take a specific course in this area. And I don't think a lot of clinicians know how to have this topic or this conversation about this topic with clients. And then when they do self-disclose, they don't know what to do with it. 
Yeah. And so you brought in I, you brought in so much research, you know. I mentioned Freud, and I would run from Freud if somebody talked about him, and you made him relatable. Um, but also Dr. Lysik, uh, who we have had on this program uh, prior, you you reference him. You bring in a lot of. Uh, I think at the end of at the end of the book, you have like pages and pages of uh, of people that you've credited in, in this. So, yeah. so it, it had to be like a, such a labor of love and such a long time to put this book together. And uh, it, I really appreciate it. I, I know that anybody I definitely feel like it was a, a labor of love, you know, because I care a lot about this population and how they struggle and the impact that sexual abuse male sexual abuse has had on them in their own development you know yeah. and i i wanted them to be able to make sense of their experience and i wanted therapists and psychologists to be able to help men make sense of their experience and to find healing yeah and uh i think through your book, through the work that you're doing, we're very much moving the needle in the right direction. Um, you kind of touched on this a little bit where you said, at least for male survivors, there's a large element of shame of this, and it can sometimes morph into a toxic shame. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the other issues that maybe men are facing where they might be like, oh, this is just like the way that I operate, but it's like, no, that's maybe something that we should look at or maybe like a little litmus test of where you're at. Um. Well, I, I want to say that the number one research identified issue with male sexual abuse is sexual identity confusion. So that that is huge. Um, and like I said, that's the, that's the number one side effect. If you asked any male, um, not every male, but a, a large percentage of males, what was the result of your sexual abuse they would say well it puts so much confusion into my sexuality uh, tyler perry has a statement that he said on uh the show with oprah when she did the whole male sexual survivor um episode i think it was probably late 90s maybe when she did that um he said she asked him, did this affect your sexuality? And he said, yes, I spent my whole 20s trying to figure out what it was that this perpetrator gave me into my male heterosexuality, um, what he gave me and, 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 and how to work through it. Like it was so confusing for him um, because I think a lot of males, some males will come into my office and say, I'm watching gay porn and I don't know why. Like, I'm so confused why I'm drawn to this. Or, you know, about once every 10 people that I have sex with, I will go have sex with a guy. And I don't understand why. I don't know where this comes from. I completely identify as heterosexual. You know, and then when I start digging into that, um, we find out that there was something, some kind of sexual sexual abuse in their past. So once one time, one case I, I can tell you about to prove my point is a man came in in his mid-30s and he, an, he answered an ad where he 
simply walked in a man's house. The man gave him oral sex. He ejaculated, put on his pants and walked back out of the house. Somehow his wife found out about that and demanded that he go to therapy. When he came to therapy, therapy with me, he had no clue why he did this. He said, I, there's so much of it. I can't remember. It was like he was dissociated through the event. And when I worked with him long enough, what had happened when he was 12 or 13 years old, he was out riding his bike. Um, and this man, a couple blocks over from where he lived, kept inviting him up to the porch. Um, and so he eventually went in and, and hung out with the man one afternoon. Well, the man ended up giving him oral sex. And so when we analyzed that situation and he was able to bring that back to awareness, he unconsciously created that exact event in his adult life with this other man. Mm -hmm. Even to the fact that this was an older man in the ad, like the years between them, it, so many things matched up. So, so many men will come in and not understand why they are drawn or aroused to a certain thing. And it's either that they're unconsciously replicating it or that the abuse caused some kind of cue in them that they are still drawn to, like gay porn, even though they identify as completely heterosexual. So it's interesting that you said people come to you. I would think that people would look you up and and because you're practicing still today. And um, I, I would think people would look you up and say, okay, I was abused. I need to go see Dr. Carpenter. And, and it's really, it sounds like they come to you for um, reasons that they don't even yet know that are related to their abuse as children. That's, that's very interesting in itself. And, how do, how do they find you then? Do they do they just see that you deal with men's sexual dysfunction and then that, that's yeah, how I mean, they I'm find kind you? Of in the Detroit area, I mean, I think I have a, a pretty decent reputation and that people know that I deal with addiction, sexual addiction, sexual trauma. And so, you know, people will, will come to me for one reason. And then it really ends up being something else. Also, research, just general research in, about therapy uh, says that a person really doesn't tell you truly why, why they're there until about the sixth session. Interesting. So I wanted to talk a little bit about perpetrators because the first section of your book discusses the different types of abuse and the perpetrators. And you you felt it was necessary for us to uh, the reader to understand perpetrators why why was that important for you to include up front because so many sexual abuse victims have found a way to blame themselves that i wanted them to see you had no responsibility in this perpetrators are cunning they're manipulative they pick up on very slight cues that lead them to think, oh, maybe I can get away with this. They figure out how to manipulate kids. 
um, the vast majority of sexual abuse is done by somebody close to you and that you know and that you love and you trust. Well, they've know they have figured out how to get you into that position. And then they abuse you because you trust them. Sometimes you even love them. And that makes the abuse more confusing and the disclosure more difficult. Because if if you're my uncle or you're my babysitter or you're the guy next door who watches me after school and you're the one who plays football with me, takes me out for ice cream, goes swimming with me, you're my buddy. Like you care for me, you nurture me, you take care of me while mom's at work. And then you start abusing me. That's what perpetrators do. They create that confusion. And that confusion is then how they manipulate you and keep you roped in and keep you roped in to not disclosing. So I want abuse, abuse survivors to understand how manipulative and cunning that perpetrators are. And that this is in no way your fault. You cannot self-blame. For example, I heard one story where uh, the kids coach, so the, so the mom had to work late. And so the coach agreed to keep the kid at his house until the mom got off work after practice. Okay. Well, the coach had pornography laying out on the coffee table and he sat down on the couch with the kid and, and he saw the kid looking at the magazines uh, cover and he said well do, do you want to look at this and the kid said well sure and so they sat and looked at him together naturally the kid got an erection and so then the coach then blamed him well this is your fault you wanted to look at these magazines and now you have an erection now i have to teach you how to get rid of this erection so it's your fault mm -hmm. you did this you brought this on i'm i'm just trying to help you so that is just pure manipulation. So you've worked with perpetrators, and you mentioned that early in your career, you you worked with perpetrators, and and um, not a lot of people do, by the way. They usually want to stay away from them and right. and like not talk to them and find. Uh, how does this one? If if it's not the abuse that happened to them. Uh, how does one become a perpetrator? I mean, there's no perpetrators club where they get together and learn all these manipulation, uh, you know, skills and things and how to be a perpetrator, an abuser. Uh, how do they get these? How does this happen? Did you learn anything about that in your in your well studies? Okay, so I'm I'm gonna probably unfairly make some connections here. So. Anything that's sexually uh, deviant or is not within the norm. So pedophilia, exhibitionism, voyeurism, and, and, and other behaviors like this. The underlying basis is this person has not psychosocially matured enough that they know how to build adult, loving, intimate relationships. So with the pedophile, they relate more to the child, even though they have the adult mind to be able to manipulate the child. They don't have the social skills really to often build a true, healthy, 
intimate relationship with another adult. Or if they do, it's probably not a healthy one. It may be a surface one. Just like, you know, people often fear or you hear in the news, so-and-so got arrested for um, exposing themselves or so-and-so got arrested for being a voyeur and, and people are scared to death of these people. Oh, I'm afraid they're going to break in and hurt me because they were being a peeping Tom. These are the people who are not going to hurt you. They're scared of you. That's why they do it from a distance. They make it psychologically safe for them to sexually act out and not come in contact with you. You know, the pedophile does come in contact with you, but the base of all those problems is that they have lacked the maturity and the development to make adult healthy relationships though. So they have found ways to manipulate their environment and people in their environment to get their connection needs met. Did that make sense? It does. I, um, I, I, yeah, go ahead. I'm like trying to process. I'm like, yeah, that was, that was, that, that really makes sense. I'm like connecting a lot of thoughts right now. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's, that's very interesting. And I think maybe a good lens to view where it's not necessarily, I don't know. I think sometimes I have this view of like, oh, it's just like those people over there, but it's like, no, there's mm. like a developmental issue here that is at play yeah. that we can identify. And when you yes. start <clears throat> the correct problem, you can start getting the results you're looking for. Um, I can tell you this is, this is kind of, uh, I don't know. Uh, I, I think it's just from all the training, but I have attended uh, three different times in a church environment. I have seen men involved in children's ministry. And I've went to the pastor and said, I think you need to look out for this man. Because to me, they have the signs of somebody who could potentially be a predator or a perpetrator. They have no adult relationships. If they do have adult relationships, they're tumultuous and they have bonded with either a child or several children in their children's ministry. And unfortunately, in all three times that I have went to a pastor and said, you need to look out for this, I was correct. And it eventually came out that they were abusing a child. And again, it's about that lack of social maturity and how they interact. You know, if a male tells me that they're much more comfortable with children than other adults, that scares me. Because you are still, no matter how immature you are, you are still an adult man in an adult man's body, and you still have adult male sexual desire, urges, cravings. And if you can't form a relationship with an adult partner, you're going to turn to some other outlet for your sexuality i think um you touched on this and i would love to dive in because you devote a chapter to this about clergy mm -hmm. abuse and its effect on spirituality and could you kind of talk through mm -hmm. a little bit about that like is this an area where most of this abuse is happening to boys is, uh, and kind of just your general thoughts on it and anything else you'd like to share well i, I think that there are a few layers to that um, I mean, we all know about the atrocities that's happened in the, the Catholic Church and with the archdiocese and, you know, the movie Spotlight brought a lot of light to that. Um, if if you're abused by someone in authority over you, and, and this is definitely big in a spiritual realm, 
people view pastors or priests almost as some someone uh, from the divine. They have some aspect about them that might even represent deity to you. When that person breaks your trust and violates you, that's where um, the whole theory of what's called betrayal trauma theory um, kind of originated, is that somebody that you really, really trusted violated you, and it became a huge betrayal. And when that happens with somebody that represents a, a spiritual figure for you, you then people have a tendency to then become resentful or angry or confused toward God or whatever they represent as, as God or spirituality. Um, another layer of that is they may be confused about why did God let this happen to me? If God's in control of everything in the universe, why would he do this to me? Why would he let this happen to me? Why would he make me defective? Why would he allow something to happen to me that makes me different than all my peers and all all other males? And so it's in that victim's um, mental mindset of trying to make meaning of the abuse. Why and how did this happen? And what does it mean? And often they either blame themselves or if in a spiritual setting, they'll often turn around and blame God. Isn't it, though, that, um, you know, I know that the uh, all about the Catholic Church and the churches, but it, there's also the Boy Scouts of don't perpetrators like go to where it's the easiest to uh, to attack boys. And, you know, the, yes. the thing is, is that the, the church turned their back on it. Uh, you know, they did, they avoided uh, confronting it. They just moved the priest from, in my lifetime, moved the priest from church yes. to church. Same with, same with the Boy Scout leaders. They just were able to go in there without even being checked. Um, yeah. So I quote some statistics in my book from research 15% of perpetrators specifically picked their profession to have access to children. 41% of perpetrators will tell you that their profession uh, and having access to children played a part in why they chose that, that profession. Yeah. So if you can understand the two statistics, the first one was I completely chose it to have access to children. The the 41% part of the reason was it would give me access to children. So to me, I would think that you would think that that would be a good way to curtail children, childhood abuse by, by putting things in place. Like the Catholic church has put in this training. Now you have to go through vigorous training. If you even come close to a, a child, you have to, they call it virtus training and, and you go through this, get fingerprinted, everything yes. before you can have anything to do. The more we do these things for these organizations that, and they might find other ways to get to children, but at least we start closing up the, the opportunities, right? Well, for example, in, in most churches now to get insurance on the church, you have to put anybody who works with children under the age of 18, they have to go through a background check. And if you don't do that, then, you know, you, you can't purchase the insurance. Um, so that's been a, a good way for churches, at least to begin to identify 
perpetrators and not put them in children's ministry if they have some kind of background. But if this person hasn't ever been caught, they could easily get through um, that safeguard um, mm-hmm. and then have access to children, you know. Well, and, you know, the other thing is that um, I remember when, when you know, a lot of my friends would say, well, most most priests are gay because they uh, have, uh, they, they've abused all these, a lot of them have abused all these children. And, and that's not true, right? Perpetrators no. are not usually gay. No, not necessarily. No, a vast majority of them will identify as heterosexual. But either they're in a, in a place like priests, like they can't have relationships with females according to their covenant um so they find another outlet um of what's available yeah well i i think they can't have sex with anybody but um well right yeah that's what it's supposed to be yeah right Yeah, it's it, it's really the closing up though. I mean, I think you bring up a good point. It's it's closing those those opportunities that uh, that a lot of us need to focus on. Yeah, if we, we have want to, to create, this. we have to continue to create safeguards for children. Make sure that the appropriate backgrounds are checked. That there's checks and balances in place. That um, uh, adults are not left alone with a child or alone with a group of children. You know, it's good to, for those things to happen in groups, for there to be a, a couple of leaders present, you know, just creating good safeguards for children. And, and really, this comes down to parenting. I raised my children from a very, very young age that no one besides mom and dad or the doctor touches you in a part of your body where you wear a bathing suit. That those are considered your parts, your private parts. And the only time mom and dad or a doctor will touch them is if you come and tell me there's something wrong. And I made it very normal for my kids that if someone tries to touch you in one of those parts, that's not your fault and you just come and tell dad and dad will deal with it that's an adult problem yeah i wish i would have uh had that knowledge when uh, kids were growing up because because i was in denial of my abuse i i ended up compensating for that by uh being uh involved in every single like a helicopter parent right they Mm. call it being involved in every single thing my kids did when they had sleepovers i would be very watchful get up in the middle of the night make sure that everything's okay the the i had to be on every trip that went overnight with school Mm. i had to like go be a assistant coach or coach for every yeah. sporting event that they did it's yeah. like well i'm sure exhausting. my <laughs> i know my son for sure got tired of my talks because anytime he would go away on a camping trip or he would spend the night with somebody i would sit down on the edge of the bed and say okay i just want you to remember you know if somebody tries to touch you in one of these areas you need to call me or or tell me as soon as you get home um you know, I, I talked to him from a very young age about pornography and the dangers of it. I I did not shy away from any sexual conversations. I talked talk to my kids about masturbation and that nobody does this to you. You don't do it to anybody. You don't do it with anybody. This is your own private time. 
if you choose to enjoy that, that's okay. You can do that in the bathroom or in your bedroom by yourself. You know, I put guidelines and parameters around some of these behaviors that parents are so afraid to talk to their kids about. Yeah. And I just but tried to normalize it. I didn't make it something, some big, huge deal. I, I just, and I didn't make them feel responsible for it. I tried to just say, this is a, a dad issue if somebody tries to touch you. How, how do you do that in a way that it doesn't like, have the reverse effect and make them unable to ever have a, a sexual relationship in adulthood because they're afraid of it. Like my mom used to tell me, if you have sex with a girl, your life is over because she's going to get pregnant and you're, you're, and so I was a virgin forever because I was, I didn't, she didn't tell me about contraception. She just told me the effects. Of okay. Well, I also <laughs> tried to present the other thing is that, you know, I, I am a Christian we are a spiritual family and I did try to talk about the beauty of sex and, and that God designed this for uh, to be shared with another person whom you love and that you marry. And I tried to present this as this is a beautiful thing that your mom and I have together. And someday you will have that with your person, you know, but you're not at the age where this is appropriate for you. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I didn't try to make sex or attraction or arousal, something uh, bad or dirty or lustful. I just tried to normalize it. In fact, the first time my son had a wet dream, he came and told me, and he told me about the dream he had. No. And that was a really cool experience. I can't even imagine ever telling my parents anything to do with anything that was going on with me that way. Well, I had just, you know, since he was five years old, I just normalized this behavior. And I, when he would come to me with a question about sex, I never freaked out. I just answered him. Like one time he came and asked me all about how condoms work because we had went to see a Broadway play where a condom it, it was in the pocket of the person and the mother finds it and it's a big ordeal in the play. And so then he came and asked me like all about condoms and how do you use them and what do they do and what are they for? And do you just have one or do you have to buy a lot of them or, you know, and I just normalized these conversations and I never shied away from them. Yeah, that's that's like that's like a whole area in itself of teaching parents how to do this, I think would be so, so valuable because uh it's just it's not around. And I in part two, I want to talk of our conversation today. I want to talk more about um the beauty of sex part of it. So yeah. I don't want to go in there right now because we're gonna get into that in part two, because that's that's something that I think that a lot of survivors struggle with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and just like I, t I told my kids, this is something very enjoyable. And sometime later in life, you will very much enjoy this. But it's just not time right now to do that. I think you're touching on this idea of like one, instilling a lot of agency in your children and saying like you are your own person, you have a right to your own space, your own belongings, and to protect that. And also this really beautiful idea of let the adults handle the adult things and you be a kid. And I think Absolutely. that is a really great idea that you touched on because sometimes it's like, we expect kids to handle the adult problems. And it's like, that feels so inappropriate. That's how you get kids so that are growing up way too fast, who lose their childhood. 
And yes. I think that's just, I think it's such a great idea that extends past the boundaries of this conversation. Like any parent, you could tell them, hey, instill a sense of agency in your children. Let the children do what they're good at. Let the adults handle what they're good at. And don't make your kids feel weird. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, uh, so a lot of this is about parenting. Yeah. Parenting, having a relationship with your child. An iPad does not need to raise your child. You do. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You took the 10 minutes to have the pleasure to make them. That was a commitment for a lifetime to take care of them. Yes. If, if your dad had that conversation with you before you went to the friend's house and had the pornography all over the place, do you think it, it would have changed things for you? Oh, yeah, because I think I would have went and told my parents, like, yeah. you know, I they have Playboy and Penthouse and magazines all over their house. Like, this is really weird. But because I never had any conversation about sex, I was intrigued by those magazines, like, I'd never seen a girl with her legs spread like that. Oh, my gosh. Not only was it not uh, allowed in my household, but I remember finding one of my dad's Playboys when I was six years old and making my first, on my first communion day, my mom told me I was going to hell oh. for looking at this magazine. I mean, this is this is a whole nother program. <laughs> we should have a part three uh, because this is, this is, yeah. Well, okay, so here's another parenting thing. (laughs) You know that exhibit that's going around about the human body where they like have the body cut in half and and, in longitudinal and they cut the body. It's a museum and it travels around. I don't know if you guys have seen it or been to it, but, you know, they, they recommend it's the human body exhibit. They recommend that it not be kids, kids under 12, not be allowed to go. Well, when my kid was about eight, I took him to see that. And so when I bought tickets, the person at the counter actually started arguing with me. Like, we don't recommend this for kids under 12. I said, I know. And she goes, well, how old is he? I said, he's eight. She's like, well, we don't recommend this for kids under 12. I said, I know. I'm the parent. You are not. You are not the parent. I am the parent. I am making the choice that I want him to see this. And so she did not like it. She continued to argue with me. And I just refused and you know demanded that she sell me a ticket so in there um it didn't freak him out he was fine but when we were looking at a female who had been cut in half he literally took his finger and he went like he figured out This is because I said, he goes, what is that? And I said, well, that's the uterus. That's where the baby grows. And he figured out like how the kid got out. And like, and that just opened up a whole conversation that I got to explain with a human body. Like you put your penis in here, sperm comes out, it goes in here. This is where the egg is made. The baby grows in here. And this is how he gets out. Like, I didn't make it some big, mysterious, terrible, sex is awful thing. This is just biology, dude. Yeah. And it was a beautiful moment between he and I. You know, instead of shying away from any of this, you have to lean into it and approach it and be a parent. I, I to... You're not there yet as a parent. You're not a parent yet, but when you get there, you're going to find learning. this. You're going to find this so valuable. And I, I, I tried so hard to be the parent to my kids 
that I wanted as a kid and tried to educate them and not go overboard. For example, it, at five years old, kids learn, really start to understand that there's a difference between boys and girls. And they often want to see that. I want to experience that's where the whole show me mine, I'll show you yours things comes in. And research shows that one in kids, one in 10 kids will play, show you, you know, I'll show you mine if you show me yours. That is not sexual. And so many parents freak out when they walk in and your little boy has his pants around his ankles and he's playing with his penis pointing at another uh, little girl. You know, oh my God, he's a pervert. He's going to be this nasty, horrible sex machine thing. No, it's, this is normal sexual behavior. It's not even sexual. It's just curiosity that somehow this girl is different than me. I remember when my son one time was in the bathtub with my daughter and he looked at me and he goes, dad, when is hers going to grow? And I go, it's not, she doesn't have one, you know? And and we just talked about the difference. But freaking out about it can can, can affect them the rest of their lives. Well, right, their because it makes, it makes this part of my body secretive, bad, wrong. If I do anything wrong with it, I'm, I'm wrong. I'm bad somehow. It, 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 Which brings us back shame. to secret shame, shame in the first place. And that's why I named it secret shame, because when somebody goes through experiences around sex that is harmful to them, it becomes shame oriented and they keep that a secret for so long. And that secret and the beliefs that they have around that shame impacts them in such negative ways. And I want to try to prevent that for people. I don't want them to carry that kind of shame. Mm. You know, I didn't know that voice. This was going to end up being a parenting class. But, but, you know, it's so important. If we want to prevent childhood sexual abuse, we have to be parents who educate our kids and not in a way that we let them go to school and learn about good touch, bad touch. You know, I think a lot of I can't I can't prove this. I'm sure if I could look up some statistics, but I wonder how many kids come away from those kind of elementary programs falsely accusing somebody of something. You know, I'm sure they, they add value, too, but it is not the school's job to raise my kid. It is my job. I think this is your next book. I really do. I, I think it's needed. It is needed, but we have to educate our kids about their bodies, about sex, about how to relate to other people, about the dangers of pornography, all of this. It's just a part of growing up in the world in which we live today. Especially with the yeah, the internet. It's yeah. it's so crazy. You know, the people that like the, the kids that are committing suicide because they shared pictures of themselves to a, yeah. a, online and, and they're being, uh, you know, uh, blackmailed uh, for releasing well, pictures. And, and the research shows that as a child, the quicker a child discloses, the more likely they are to recover without any further trauma. But we don't set kids up to disclose, especially males. 
We teach kids about stranger danger. And we teach girls about being touched, but we don't teach boys about being touched. Mm. We scare them about being kidnapped, but we don't teach them about, you know, if another man touches you in, you know, your bathing suit part that you need to come and tell somebody. We don't teach that. Well, and females can be perpetrators too. And I remember when I was in high school uh, or middle school, probably a friend of mine, uh, an older woman, you know, uh, molested him or whatever. But today we would call it that. He he called it a notch in his belt. Initiation. Oftentimes yeah. it's viewed as initiation. And if you will look at the, all the films that Hollywood has pumped out about adult women having sex with teenage boys and that that's glamorized. Yeah. Well, you know, even as early as The Graduate. And how old is that movie? Yeah, 1969, I think. It's like, yeah, a long time ago. That's the freaking year I was born. <laughs> 50 years, you know, there's been yeah. this, this belief that that's initiation. And in fact, in the Jamaican culture, I have a chapter in the book where I talk about yeah. different cultures' reactions to this. In the Jamaican culture, boys are taught that even sexual abuse is part of them being educated about sex that it's all seen as education and initiation. And so- Well, I remember that chapter, they they actually perform fellatio on older boys. Now that's not Jamaica, that's oh, that's the Zambia, uh, in, I think it's New Guinea, that there's a tribe of people that believe that the way males, young males grow up into being men in adolescence is that they have to, perform oral sex on other boys older than they they are and swallow their semen and that that semen creates growth in the boy to then become a mature muscular man and as the child is growing through adolescence they have a tendency to say see it's working look how he's growing mm -hmm. but that's not considered sexual abuse in that tribe you know, so those boys don't grow up feeling sexually abused. It's it's a natural part of what they're taught, where in our culture that would be viewed as yeah. sexual abuse. So some of this is contextual, but like in the Jamaican culture, boys can be violated. They feel violated, but they can't disclose because they're told it's just part of being educated in sex. And, and so it, it's not all initiation, you know, just like a lot of these Hollywood movies with an older woman are, it's about initiation and boys, we're supposed to enjoy sex, no matter who we get it from and where it comes from, right? We're supposed to be ready at all time. You know, I should be, I should be, I, males are so sex craved, crazed. We want sex all the time we're ready for it. We can get a hard on in, in an instant, you know, all these societal things that boys are taught consciously or unconsciously that, that prevents a lot of boys feeling like what happened to me was abuse, especially if it comes from a female perpetrator. Do you think that's a hundred percent taught that, that, or do you think there is something inherent in boys that, 
they are a little less attached to an emotional connection than women are when they for sex or do you think that's all taught and that's the way we were raised and and that's what we have to change too well you're getting into a much deeper topic there because then that's going to get into imprinting in your own part two okay (laughs) yeah which we're going to talk about the next session okay i'll save that i'll save that question so it's a lot about write that question down right about development you know because ultimately we want a connection with a partner to be about love and intimacy and sex is a byproduct of that. We become a, a society where, you know, I get on hinge or grinder or whatever. I find a partner. I have sex with them first. Then I get to know them. Yeah. We're in a society <laughs> who've completely has the dynamic of relationship building completely backwards. I get to know your penis before I get to know you. Yeah. Um, what, like, what, what, what sorts of factors are like playing into that? That we totally flip those things. Like, is it just like socio, what, norms of being like this is what is normal, this is what is expected? Is it a reaction to historically it being about love and intimacy first, and then sex later? Um, Well, I I think, you know, during the sexual revolution, you know, sex began to change and it became much more, you know, and some of this was good, some of it was bad, you know, sex became something much more open and free and for you to experience whenever you want. Um, I think pornography has been the biggest detrimental impact upon relationships and building appropriate connections and sexual intimacy that exists. Because, you know, when a boy starts watching porn, so research right now shows that the average age for a male to be exposed to porn is about eight years old. So your mind is not ready for that at all. In fact, if you go back to me talking about Freud, that happens when you're eight years old, you're in what's called the latency stage of development, where you're supposed to be learning about gaining life skills. Sex is not a life skill that's supposed to be developed in the latency stage. That comes in a later stage. But yet that is is opened and introduced at an age when a person or child is not cognitively ready to process that kind of information. And so then that, that cr- creates... Um, a desire of curiosity and and from pornography people start pursuing sex versus partnership like we imprint on the sex versus the person like it should work that we fall in love and then love leads to sex but pornography has taught us you know that you can talk you can walk into the bank and within five minutes you're screwing the teller in the in a closet somewhere because that's what happens in porn especially when you're learning that at, at an age of eight and it's so accessible oh very accessible i mean two clicks away i could you know be in porn right now it's very accessible and it's 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 really an epidemic in our society 
It's really a tragedy in what it does to sexual development for, for boys and girls and the message that it sends us about our bodies, the whole comparison of your body. What, what eight-year-old's body can compare to an adult porn star yeah. who has to have a seven and a half inch penis or they won't even be considered for the porn industry for a heterosexual film? It's full of terrible messages. I mean, I, I want to kind of draw this conversation a little bit back. We've we've kind of wandered all over the place. We've talked about we have. Our, uh, parenting. We've talked about you know the potential adult effects of what sort of factors are playing into that. We are prioritizing sex before love and intimacy and different things like that. But I kind of want to draw the program back to where we first started on talking about survivors and talking about this idea of healing. And if you have any ideas about you know how people can start this process of like disclosing like, hey, this is what happened to me and steps from there on what can I do to better understand myself? What can I do to better process what I'm going through and heal past or heal through this? Well, the, the first part is uh, exactly what you said, finding your voice. You know, e even if you think, well, this happened to me, I don't know if it was abuse. Sit down with a professional and have that conversation. Talk about it disclose it to someone, process that with someone. You know, I think so many people, men have been sexually abused, but have never turned it that, have, have never identified it as that. And part of it is, is being able to sit down with someone and be vulnerable enough to say, I experienced this. Here's how I felt. Here's how it affected me. Here's how I think it's still affecting me today. And then an important step after you voice that is then we have a desire within ourselves to make meaning of the events of our, in our lives. And part of that is why I in, you know, included a chapter in my book about perpetrators. Like you have to find and figure out why did this person do this to me? And it may actually not have anything to do with you whatsoever. It may all have to do with them. And that you were just there. You were the, the available body that they had access to. And, and, and then attacking all those false beliefs that you've come to believe about yourself through the abuse. For example... This is something I was going to say for a minute ago is that I hear so many men say, I don't know why I didn't stop them, why I didn't hit him, why I didn't kick him in the balls and run, why you're taking an adult mindset at 35 and imposing it on an eight-year-old boy. Like at eight years old, you didn't think about that. You were probably afraid you were being manipulated. You were being bribed. You cannot, you don't think like an adult at, at eight years old. But at 30, you're putting an adult mindset on a child and then blaming yourself for the, the abuse. So we have to go through a whole making meaning of the scenario and then accepting it and also working through all these masculine unhealthy norms that we believe about men and then eventually you reach a point where you can share your story in a helpful way and and that's when when once you go through that entire process 
you know, that that's really where healing can come in. Is that you, getting you easier? You can't walk this journey alone. Right. And and by the way, it's not that easy to find somebody like you out there. I, uh, you know, if I would have been living in Detroit, I think I would have been a lot better off. But the, the um, you know, so that's a whole other thing is like, how do you find the, the resources? But it it seems to me that it has gotten a little better because I mean, I wouldn't even, even be having this conversation 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, very, very rarely if you would find anybody talking about this issue. I'm surprised that you had a, a class in school that talked about male sex or childhood sexual abuse, but yeah. the- Actually I am too, because so many of my colleagues never had anything like that. I think I, would suspect that my professor was a victim of sexual abuse. And so this topic was extremely important to her. Um, yeah. She never disclosed that in class, but looking back now, I can almost say absolutely. So, so is it getting any better? I do think it's getting better. I think uh, movies like Spotlight, um, Sleepers was another movie. Um I think there are movies that are starting to depict this now. And what's helped is that you have a lot of movie stars, professional athletes who are all coming out and saying, I was abused. You know, if you look at, and I mentioned this uh, in my book, um, I love American Ninja Warrior. Okay, so Flip Rodriguez is a guy on there who's one of the major athletes and he started wearing a mask and he over time has removed his mask and has talked about how that mask was something he hid behind because it was related to his own personal sexual abuse so you have these influential people now who are coming forward tyler perry's another one um don stamos insane. just uh just came forward uh, okay wow yeah. And saying I've been abused and important people that 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 kids look up to are finding their voice and they're sharing their experience, you know, and it's so important. I think the, the very last line in my book, uh, individually, our voice may be small and quiet, but collectively, our voices can be strong and heard. You know, the more and more people who are willing to speak up, the louder our voices get as a group. And we can draw more and more attention to this and how to deal with it. And so I, I do think it's getting better. Although, you know, if you, and this is another reason why I wrote this book, the disparity between the amount of sexual abuse uh, research that's done about females is, is, there's a plethora of it and there's definitely a dearth of it when it comes to male sexual abuse. Um, and that's one, another reason why I wrote the book, because I wanted to bring more attention to the research that is needed in this area of, of how it relates to males. In fact, there was one study done that showed that male sexual abuse, if you, if we were to compare um, I almost hate to say this, but if we were to compare the amount of PTSD and harm 
from female sexual abuse and male sexual abuse. Some of the research is showing that it's slightly more harmful to a male and leads to more PTSD more frequently than does female abuse. And that is not, I want to make clear, I am not discounting female sexual abuse in any way, shape, or form. I'm just saying that there's starting to be a little bit of disparity in what we're finding in the research that it's that it's it's really harmful to a man and how much PTSD. Another big part of PTSD can be dissociation, just cutting yourself off and not having any memory of it. Or when the abuse is happening, you just kind of leave your body. Disassociation in sexual abuse is showing to be like a lot more significant in males as well. In mm-hmm. a frequent um, uh, side effect of, of the abuse. In fact, one of my I have like four books in the process and one of them is I am, I want to write a book about the difference between when a male is sexually abused by a male and when a sexual, a male is sexually abused by a female and how the results or the impact of those sometimes differ. Hmm. Cause I, I anecdotally, I have seen some differences when a man comes in and talks to me about being abused by a woman compared to when they've been abused by men. So that's one of my books that I really want to dive into and do a bunch of research in and hopefully publish someday. In addition to parenting, the new parenting book that we're adding to your roster. (laughs) Yes. Um, I want to ask you, you know, I think a lot of people wonder, will I ever be over this? You know, will I ever get past this? Will I ever be done? And, you know, as someone who is like a professional in that space, like, what is your kind of opinion on that? Are people ever done with this healing process? Are they ever at an end destination? Is that the wrong kind of way to imagine it? Um, You'll never be over it. You can't undo something that happened. But you can change your mindset about it. You can change how you interpret what happened to you you can change the impact of what happened to you and how you allow it to manifest in your adult life so you can alter the impact of it through your thoughts and your own behavior but it's something that you're going to carry with you for the rest of your life but again it's all about that meaning making and what you begin to tell yourself about it you know, if I can take a male from being swallowed up in self-blame to then understanding that I had no blame in this, and the shame that I've carried for all these years does not belong to me, it belongs to the perpetrator, and I can give all that shame back to them, this person's life can be transformed through that. So there can be a paradigm shift in the experience for the survivor. But it's it's not something we can erase. It's never going to go away. But you can live with it and and live normal, like a normal life of whatever that is. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I've treated people who came in who had really difficult sex lives as a rely as a, a result of their sexual abuse. And you know, after three or four years of therapy, 
not saying it takes everybody that long and sometimes it takes longer, you know, are living very happy, fulfilled, intimate lives with a partner and a satisfying sex life as well. So um, we are, we're almost out of time for part one, but I want to ask you one of the things that we do, what we find very, um, very effective on this program is asking our guests to look out into the into the audience of so the people that are watching and most of the people that are watching are going to be interested in this topic because sure. they're abuse victims right what what message would you like to give male survivors who are watching or listening to this program well number one i would want you to know that there is hope and that you no longer have to be silent that it's okay for you to find your voice and that there are people who want to hear you, your story and want to help you mature and grow into the person that God designed you to be, the person that you want to be, and to move into a healthy adult lifestyle. I, I'm a firm believer of if you chase your pain, you'll find your healing. And there are people out there who will help you walk this journey through your pain to arrive at healing. And don't be afraid to take that journey. That's great. And and um, hopefully they can if they can get a hold of you if they want to help if you if you if they want to uh, talk to you about ways that they can accomplish that uh, at the end of this program. We'll put some contact information. Uh, for you as well, and I, I really recommend um, picking up uh, Secret Shame. It's uh, it, it it has all of this in it, and it just um, again was was quite the game changer for me. And I really, really appreciate uh, getting to know you and 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 having uh, that book. Uh, I, I reached out to you immediately. Uh, after I finished it, because I was like, "Oh my gosh, I need to talk to this person." He's like a rock star to me because oh, that's how I, that's how I felt at the time. So thank you so much, Doctor Carpenter. You're welcome. For and I just our... want to say that if you if you go to my website where you can find my book, I have created like a 150 page workbook that goes along with this book that you can also use with your therapist to truly work through your abuse. So there's a guide there to help you through this process. The right. company is the main text. Thank you, and and you know we'll we're gonna get to part two here. We're gonna really talk uh, a lot in depth on the effects on our sexuality. But thanks for joining, uh, and and thanks for sharing your amazing findings and and all the work that you do for for us male survivors, and most of all, again for your amazing book, Secret Shame. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me on. Thanks so much, and. Uh... To everyone watching and listening, we really hope you found this discussion very enlightening, comforting, and filled with hope. Uh, please look to all our YouTube channel and all the major podcast sites for this program. And part two of our interview with Dr. Carpenter, as well as our other programs from Men of Voices Beyond Assault, will be available there as well. Yeah, and please send us your comments, leave your comments on this site. We really do value your input. Um, there will be other information at the end of the program and on the site in the notes and look at our website. Thanks again for all you survivors out there uh, for your continued support of programs like this and organizations such as Voices Beyond Assault. It's your courage that gives us all strength. 
We'd like to thank all of you for joining our program today and hope you found the information useful and helpful. For more information about this and other programs from Voices Beyond Assault, please visit our website at voicesbeyondassault.org. We also invite you to subscribe to this podcast or our video version on YouTube. Thank you again, and remember, together we heal. Hiding it in his hands made me say, am I okay? Don't say too late tomorrow, too late tomorrow. Face crashed down.